Back in late 2019, a piece of news made headlines around the world. Medical diagnostic teams in India developed an artificial intelligence tool that could speed up the screening process for cervical cancer. It can distinguish between normal and abnormal test results accurately and alert human diagnostic teams to take a look. It's estimated that the technology can process cervical cancer test results four times faster than more traditional methods. That speed is important. Cervical cancer kills around 67,000 women in India every year, and early detection could change that. Advances in technology have always moved medicine and healthcare forward. And today, artificial intelligence is a big part of that. AI can help detect diseases, identify treatment options, and, as we'll hear later in this episode, AI may even be able to predict pandemics. But, as we've explored throughout this season on AI Meets World, healthcare is centered around the concept of trust, and we have to be sure we can trust AI with our patient data. Take that cervical cancer success story in India, for example. In order to train the artificial intelligence to detect abnormal cells, the AI was fed with half a million anonymized test results. If we wanted to predict a global pandemic along the lines of the one we're experiencing right now, how much more data would we need? And how could we possibly make sure the data stays confidential and secure? In this episode, I went looking for those answers. In fact, I found a partial answer. It's called differential privacy. What is it? That's coming up right after this word from Microsoft. I wanted to learn more about the issues surrounding AI, healthcare, and trust. So I reached out to John Cahan, Microsoft's Chief Data Analytics Officer. He leads Microsoft's AI for Health initiative, which is a philanthropic program that launched earlier this year. It provides funding and AI and data science tools to help advance the health of people and communities worldwide. John, I'd like to talk with you about Microsoft's AI for Health initiative. What are some of the projects that you launched with back in January, you know, just a few months before the whole world changed? Yeah, when AI for Health originally kicked off, um, we were focused in three main areas. One we call Quest for Discovery, uh, which is really understanding some of the real key challenges in the world and really focused in that space. The second is around uh, empowering researchers on global health to help bridge the gap of people that did not have uh, healthcare. And the third is around uh, ensuring that um, we could um, advance research in key areas. Um, Some of the areas that we focused on um, are areas such as diabetic retinopathy. There are um, over 200 million people in the world um, that can go blind from diabetes. And using uh, artificial intelligence and low-cost cameras, uh, even ultimately a cell phone camera, which is ultimately the vision of something like this, um, when there's only 200,000 ophthalmologists in the world, uh, we can use data and artificial intelligence to scale to help people anywhere in the world. Uh, Another area is the work that we're doing with Seattle Children's and SIDS research. Uh, This is dear to my heart. Um, I lost my first child to SIDS, uh, my fourth my first and only son to SIDS. And, oh, I'm so um, sorry. Um, and this uh, stemmed from some work we were doing with Seattle Children's. Here, um, we're using research to advance an area that 
frankly, you know, for over a thousand years, people didn't fully understand. And now using artificial intelligence and data and marrying medical research and top-notch world-class researchers with data scientists, we now understand 22% of all deaths uh, associated with SIDS. And then wow. probably the last area is around advancing tools to help advance research in the area of privacy, uh, an area that we call differential privacy, using uh, techniques that open up data to researchers anywhere in the world. So that's kind of in a nutshell what AI for Health was about. It was a $40 million initiative over five years. And as you alluded to, COVID hit us head on <laughs> just as we started launching AI for Health. Uh, and the world changed dramatically. Wow. Wow. And uh, how did the COVID-19 pandemic impact your work? Well, COVID completely changed the world. The reality is we have a major crisis going on now. We need to move as fast as we can. Um, speed is more important in many cases than perfection is something that I like to say. Um, we are better off um, empowering those on the front lines as fast as we can. Uh, as quickly as we can. And no one company can do that alone. No one government can do it alone. No public or private sector organization can do it alone. And so very quickly, the walls dropped. And very rapidly um, across the world, one of the great things about COVID is people were moving extremely rapidly. Of course, you have to do it, though, in a way that preserves privacy and preserves security at the same time. Um, we're very blessed at Microsoft and AI for Health. Really, Microsoft led the way here in a set of technology over 15 years ago um, called differential privacy, which preserves the actual privacy of the data, but unlocks the data for researchers to get meaning. Yeah, one of my questions for you there, John, definitely was about differential privacy. And, and if you can kind of, in layperson's terms, explain what that means and actually how it works. Yeah, in very simple terms, uh, if you think about uh, data, um, data has a lot of elements to it. Um, very private data might have the name of an individual. It might have their location. And of course, in health, in this space, it'll have a lot of health personal data with it. In uh, the traditional world, you would strip out their name and you might strip out their location. And then you might even strip out further information about uh, the numbers of people that would have the condition that they would have. And as you're stripping all this out, two terrible things happen. One, you lose signal. And those are very important signals. The location particularly may be a very important signal. The demographics about that individual. Name is not as important, but the other information is very important. That hurts the, the researcher's capability to actually operate. The other thing is it's not perfect when you strip out all that information. And so when you combine that with other data, census or other data, you can very quickly identify the individual. Differential privacy flips it on its head. It's an incredible set of technology that was invented by our researchers that actually adds data to the data. So instead of knowing that there was one person that might be uh, an African-American in a particular area that had COVID, you might have 10 people in the data set for researchers to look at, but the trend lines stay the same. And so the statistics stay the same. They, it's called adding noise to the data, literally. But you do it in a way that allows researchers to still get meaning out of the data. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about is uh, with some of the different tools that you're using in the AI for Health initiative, 
just like like how do the actual tools work and and where is the data coming from um, when you're looking at, at data sets maybe it's it's for you know the diabetic retinopathy or the SIDS or even if we're looking at say data sets from the Spanish flu to potentially look at or or more recently maybe SARS or MERS to influence uh, COVID uh, modeling where is that actual data coming from and how is it being processed. Yeah, this is a good uh, good question for a variety of reasons. Important to understand, Microsoft does not provide or own any of the data. We provide incredible skills and resources um, and technology like we described for privacy and security and machine learning models and approaches. Data, particularly in the health space, comes from a partnership between government and the private sector. Government requires certain collection of data to understand it help the health of people around the world. Many of this data is publicly available. The SIDS data is publicly available to those that have authority to use it. Um, And it has been anonymized in most cases so that you can actually use the data to help solve some of these world challenges that we have here. Many of the data is collected by nonprofits or academia in the world and for Uh, for-profit medical um, areas around the world, but they are governed very carefully by governments uh, in what they do. And so that is the key. Without data, there is no science. There is no data science. Um, And so data is the critical element, is the fuel behind artificial intelligence. And there is a mad rush to getting data more than ever in the COVID um, work that's occurring. Um, getting that data together, organizing in a way so others can access it, making it open for researchers and data scientists to collaborate as fast as humanly possible. Is there, you know, this is like a super nerdy question, but is there a data set that you wish you had, you know, especially maybe something that's like historical that you would just love to run through your your modeling and, and see what happens with it? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I you know, you, you really, you always wish you had history. At the end of the day, everything you do today in uh, is in a lot of ways repeatable from history. Like you, you mentioned earlier, like the Spanish flu of 1918. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had all the data that we have today, the same types of data, the pathology data, the epidemiology data, the, the collection of data on the cases in a pure fashion for us to do modeling against COVID today, or even SARS just a short period of time ago. The reality is the advances of data collection, of usages of data, of machine learning, of AI, have advanced dramatically over the last couple of years. In fact, COVID in a lot of ways, um, our CEO likes to say that digital transformation used to take two years, now takes two months. And so the incredible speed by which we're moving at today doesn't give us the luxury of having that data set that was there only two months ago. Just think of how fast we could move today if we collected a digital footprint of the Spanish flu. And so we're learning that today, and we will have a digital footprint for the future for our great-grandchildren. God forbid we ever have another pandemic like this. And so we are already working on what we need to do to prevent the next pandemic. And one of the things that we're trying to do is ensure that we keep a digital footprint of what's happening today so that when and if 
God forbid this happens in the future, we can move much faster with real simulations in creating vaccines, in creating therapies, in creating the kinds of things that we're trying to do to be able to model uh, at a much faster rate what's going to happen and stop it from happening in the future. John makes an important point about speed. Traditionally, technology moves incredibly fast and healthcare innovation moves slow. Are technology and healthcare at odds with each other when it comes to the speed of innovation? Or is what we're seeing right now with COVID-19, when every moment matters, changing that relationship? An example of this shifting relationship between medicine and tech is Blue Dot, a Canadian company that was able to use AI to predict the current pandemic. Not only did they get it right, but they got it right faster. Blue Dot flagged an unusual pneumonia in Wuhan, China, nine days before the World Health Organization released a statement about a novel coronavirus emerging in the area. We now know that with an exponentially spreading virus, that kind of early detection is crucially important. Next, I'm speaking with someone who can tell me more about Blue Dot and also how AI is being used on the front lines of healthcare. But first, a word from Microsoft. At St. Michael's Hospital in downtown Toronto, there's a doctor who has an unusual combination of skills, expertise in medicine and technology. Artificial intelligence works on so many things within our hospital, whether it's staffing issues, whether it's how to better get the flow within clinics and uh, how to better plan for surgeries. And there's just so many different avenues. That's Dr. Alan Ackery, and he's both Deputy Chief of Emergency Medicine and Medical Director of Information and Technology at St. Mike's. He's also an advisor to Blue Dot, that company I was telling you about that used AI modeling to predict the COVID-19 pandemic days before the World Health Organization. Dr. Ackery is just the person I wanted to chat with about how AI is being used in healthcare. I started by asking him about LKS Chart. That's the Li Ka-Shing Center for Healthcare Analytics Research and Training at St. Michael's Hospital and what they're working on. So, you know, they've got so many initiatives, but I'll probably speak to the ones that are related to the emergency department first, because uh, those are the ones I'm most familiar with. Um, you know, some of the really interesting work that I've noticed that they're doing or, or that I've been involved in is uh, the ability to predict. So if you think about how my job is, is that I don't know necessarily what's coming in the door at any one time. And uh, that's one of the things that I love about emergency medicine is that I don't know on every day whether I'm going to have an exciting day, an awful day, uh, you know, uh, a regular day. But what I know is that every day is going to be different. And I used to think that that prediction was not predictable. And what LKS has done is they've actually used very, you know, they, like I said, they've, they've got this enterprise data warehouse, they've got all this information, and they're making predictions on who's going to come in on what day, and they do it very accurately. So they take previous volume visits of the emergency department on a specific day, so let's say today, July 8th, and they then take the temperature, they take the events that are ongoing in the city, they take uh, a look at any other signals that may influence travel, so 
COVID, coronavirus, which is definitely impacting uh, foreshadowing and stuff. And then they can actually make a prediction on what's going to come in and the level of severity. They can break it down a lot to critically ill patients, mental health patients. They can predict who's going to be admitted, who's going to be discharged, and what level they're going to be triaged into the emergency department. And the thing that's interesting about both artificial intelligence and machine learning is they don't necessarily can tell you why that's going to happen, right? So there's this concept of neural networks, which even with my skill is a very complicated way of understanding uh, concepts. And so they piece that in and, and provide a prediction tool that allows us to be ready for what's going to be coming in on any certain day. So the results of that is also that we can then predict, you know, how prepared do we need to be? Um, how does this impact flow within the hospital? Um, future initiatives include like, how do we plan our, our, our scheduled surgeries? Do we need to, you know, decrease the volume in that respect on, on a certain day because we know that the volumes are coming in that are higher. So we're still in the beginning stages, I would say, even though they're, they've done a really good job of giving us the data, it's now the implementation of how do we use that data to move forward. That is absolutely fascinating. And and I'm so glad that you spoke about the emergency department analytics and, and being able to basically predict when the ER, ER is going to be busy and uh, everything around that. that. When I was reading through all of the different initiatives from LKS chart, that was the one that really stood out to me as being like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So, okay, question for you about that though. You know how when meteorologists try to predict the weather, they tend to be more accurate in a short-term forecast than a long-term forecast. Is there any kind of that macro-micro that that plays out with these type of ER predictions? Like how far, uh, you know, kind of future-looking can you kind of depend on that predictive data? Is it just for the next couple days? Or can you potentially predict an entire season's worth of, um, you know, how many cases are going to come in, surgeries? scheduling, all those things you said. Yeah. So, so just like meteor meteorologists, uh, the closer you get to the event, the more accurate it becomes. You know, so they have seven-day forecasting, three-day forecasting, 24-hour forecasting, all those things that are more accurate as you get more data points and you're kind of getting closer to that real-time initiative. So there's no doubt that at that point they, they can be very accurate 12 and 24 hours uh, prior to, um, you know, as they're collecting data points and the weather's changing, like that in itself can be a thing that can change the, the models. So of course. Um, uh, unlike the weather, if you're wrong about the weather or, you know, for the common person, it probably doesn't have that much impact, but there are big decisions that are made uh, as a result of, of the potential of predicting volumes and uh, staffing. So you don't really want to be wrong uh, often. And so, you'd much rather be kind of have that 95% confidence so that you're, you're making the right decision. So you have to get a little bit closer, but as they collect this information and as they get better at it, they're improving their, their uh, predictions. You know, what, one of the things that is literally being so hotly debated right now in Canada and in countries around the world is about how artificial intelligence and also technology beyond artificial intelligence can be used to assist in public health initiatives. Uh, you know, right now, a lot of us are debating whether or not we should use contact tracing uh, in, in terms of apps and, and using smartphones and tracking and, and those kind of things to assist in contact tracing initiatives. A lot of the critics of that technology will say that you are potentially opening a door 
to types of, uh, you know, surveillance or, or, uh, you know, this, this feeling that the need for public health initiatives are at odds with the desire for personal privacy. What do you think about that? Uh, do, do you think that that's true? And, and what are your thoughts about using technology in an ethical and responsible way in public health? Or is contact tracing really just better done the old school way with people on the telephone? So this is a very complicated question with many layers of response that could be had. I think in general, first of all, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a public health physician. Um, but, uh, you know, with some of the work that I've been involved with, um, I think they've shown quite clearly that there are better ways than calling people on the phone uh, to in, to figure out uh, contact tracing and um, the person power that is needed in order to do that. We, with the population growing and the exponential growth potential of some of these uh, conditions, it's just not feasible. We've seen this with public health in the Ontario system uh, currently, you know, um, Although they've provided a strong response, they, they, they've also been overwhelmed uh, on a person power uh, basis in order to try and do their best in terms of follow up for uh, COVID responses and, and testing, etc. You know, I think the biggest issue for me uh, when it comes to a complicated question like contact tracing or something like that is transparency. You know, I would agree. We go back to you know, <laughs> there's books being written about this for a for a long time. 1984 and the you know, Big Brother, all these things is definitely a, a a real potential that could go awry if not done correctly. I think there's been a lot of work and uh, kind of guidelines and policies to try and en- enact that 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 remains transparent and that. It's rigorously relooked at on a evolving basis to make sure that we're not going awry with respect to how we uh, use the data that we're collecting. And I think that goes for anything that that involves artificial intelligence. One of the challenges with artificial intelligence is that the machine learning components that that may come from it, or the deep learning kind of uh, technology, is that it's always changing. So it gets better by learning. So how do you keep that piece transparent at the same time, allow the technology to to do what it's supposed to do, which is to continuously learn? So I don't think we're at the stage right now where we could just unleash anybody to create uh, machine learning tools that we could just embed into any electronic health record and let it go. I think what we're better to do is to tackle smaller problems with uh, machine learning and get a better understanding and handle of how that can be used to improve patient outcomes. And from that, then you kind of, so it's almost like baby steps, yeah. uh, right? Uh, I think if we, I think we actually have the technology to, to, to take much bigger steps right now, but I think we would be prudent to, to go at a much slower pace, even though there's pressures from the public to, to improve this. Um, right. I think a very systematic approach to how we enroll some of these things is, is the right uh, strategy, but that's going to take some time. You make a really interesting point about <laughs> it's it, it, the the phrase that popped immediately into my mind is like the proper care and feeding of a neural network. 
this is not unlike parenting. I don't know if you have children, yeah. but uh, you know, with with my child, I give her very very strict boundaries about what she's you know where, where the hard rules are of what she is and isn't allowed to do, and then she's allowed to you know have some autonomy within those boundaries uh, as I as I slowly kind of nurture her and and um, and take care of her as she gets bigger and bigger and and grows and takes on more and more and more challenges. So um, the analogy I think that that is very similar in parenting i do have children is that uh you give your kids boundaries but their expectation is that they're going to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes i don't think we have that same allowance for people to have mistakes made with artificial intelligence they expect it to be perfect yeah okay so let's talk about blue dot what is blue dot how does it work how do you work with them? Uh, and then I would like to talk about uh, Blue Dot and, and the co- new coronavirus and, and COVID-19 as well. Yeah. So, so you know, the founder of Blue Dot, Cameron Kahn, is a, an infectious disease physician who I've collaborated with and who's uh, created a system. You know, he was involved in SARS uh, many years ago and saw the need for a better way of understanding how infectious disease travels through the world and a better surveillance system. And he uh, created a team that has uh, really flourished in terms of uh, understanding how uh, disease travel and predicting when and where uh, things may uh, have a higher risk of uh, impacting people's lives. You know, it's uh, obviously we're focused on COVID right now as that is overtaken our lives as we're uh, both uh, well aware of that. And uh, Blue Dot in itself was able to predict some of those signals uh, early on in this. And the idea is that with those predictions is that you'd be able to enact some, you know, management that would try and minimize whatever that influence uh, is just like anything, an early warning system of a, tornado coming right so what do we do we get in our house we board up the windows we do all those things i would i would equate that on a, on a basic level with um some of the uh work that uh cameron and his team is doing my role with uh, blue dot is uh working with them to develop how do we get that information to frontline healthcare workers because that's the people we're the people who would be boarding up the windows and ensuring not only that we uh, protect our patients that come in through the department but that we also protect our healthcare workers one of the big issues in SARS uh, that we noticed was that there was a lot of transmission of that virus to uh, a lot of uh, the healthcare workers and then could not provide the same uh, level of treatment to patients because they were sick themselves you know, again, they use machine learning, artificial intelligence from a variety of data points, whether that's uh, um, the temperature in which a virus uh, succeeds, uh, the transmission vector. So is it a, what is it that's transmitting it? Is it, is it airborne? Is it droplet? Does it go through mosquitoes? Is it, you know, related to flight patterns? Is it um, distributed uh, through close contact and, and, um, you know, it's so complicated on so many levels that uh, you need art- artificial intelligence or machine learning to take all those data points and amass it into something that's a output that is interpretable. Sure. And I think that's where, where they really strive is that they're able to survey globally 
everything. Um, you know, just because COVID is here and has overwhelmed us, there's many other infectious diseases that are still ongoing. And, uh, and we need to still have that our eye out on those other things. And I think we've kind of, as a society, been so focused on COVID, Blue Dot is doing a lot of work on that, but also keeping uh, an eye on everything else that's, that's happening uh, out there. Um, and I think that's where their value really lies. Um, again, I'm, I'm involved in, in uh, consulting with them and, and, and have that uh, that I have to disclose. But uh, I think as a, as a baseline, this kind of idea that we understand how, how uh, uh, infectious disease spread through the world is now much better understood uh, through some of the work that they've done. For days after our conversation, there's one thing that Dr. Ackery said that really stuck in my mind. When we were talking about AI needing to move slowly and take baby steps, Dr. Ackery said that he thinks people are uncomfortable with the idea of allowing machines to make mistakes, even though making mistakes is such an important part of the learning process. It reminded me of my conversation with Tim O'Brien, Microsoft's head of AI policy and ethics, from episode one of this season. In that episode, I asked Tim about what happened with Tay, Microsoft's failed chatbot experiment. Tim talked about how much Microsoft and the greater AI community has been able to learn from that experience, and how that hard-won wisdom is informing the next phase of artificial intelligence. If we continue along this track and we get it right, AI has the potential to change so many parts of our lives for the better. If you've forgotten in what ways, just go back and listen to season one. Healthcare, computing, voice assistance, e-commerce, the list goes on and on. That's why, of everything I learned from exploring AI and trust on this season of the podcast, I think the biggest thing I'm going to take away is the importance of keeping this discussion going. This is the last episode of this season of AI Meets World, but hopefully it's just the beginning of many conversations that you'll have about artificial intelligence in your daily life. In some way or another, every guest this season has talked about how important it is to keep discussing these issues collectively. It's not just the public sector or the government's job. And it's not just the private sector's job either. It's on all of us to continue having these exchanges. Let's keep exploring what could go wrong and what's going right. That way, we can examine, debate, and figure out how we want AI to shape our society together. Thanks for listening. AI Meets World is brought to you in partnership with Microsoft and the Globe Content Studio. I'm Avery Swartz. Our producer is Kyle Fulton. Our executive producers are Stephanie Chan and Kieran Rana. Our musical composer and sound designer is Olivia Pasquarelli. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. It'll go a long way towards helping other listeners find us. <laughs>